Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This summer, after years of dashed hopes and false dawns, it finally happened. We've waited since 1966 for this bad boy to come home, and he's finally done it. We've brought it home. Almost 18 million people watched as England beat Germany to win the finals of the Euro 2022, making the women's football team the pride of the nation. I wish right now that I was five years old, six years old, even 16 years old watching this game today because I'm telling you right now, I would want to be one of those players right now. It's unbelievable to inspire the next generation of talent. For women's football, this seemed to be a watershed moment when they were finally getting the attention they deserved. Welcome to the big time girls. You are the game changers. But historians pointed out that none of this was really new. A hundred years ago, in the England of the early 1920s, women's football matches were drawing bigger crowds and making more money than men's. Until, in a remarkable move, they were banned by the FA, the Football Association. They ruled that women could not have access to pitches affiliated to the FA. Every ground in the country was affiliated to the FA because it was the national governing body of the sport. So that effectively pushed women's football underground. That ban lasted for the next 50 years and its effects are still felt today. A kind of generation of children grew up, not only like me not being able to play in school, but they just didn't see any women playing football ever. Will that finally change now? And what lasting legacy have the Lionesses had as women's football kicked off again this weekend? The start of a brand new season in the Barclays Women's Super League and maybe a brand new era after an unforgettable summer. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, the lost Lionesses, the secret history of women's football. I'm Molly Hudson. I have been at The Times as a football reporter now since 2017. I started off when I was a student. It was a little women's football column. Back then, you know, not a great deal of people kind of watch women's football. It was just a column that rounded up what happened that week. And then the 2019 World Cup that summer was when I graduated from my degree. So I actually missed my graduation because I was out in France reporting on the World Cup. 
that's commitment. Yeah, <laughs> never really looked back since, really. It's not too bad a job, I suppose. <laughs> For Molly, the job only got better this summer when it involved reporting on the final of the Euro 2022. Walking out of the tube at Wembley Park Stadium and just seeing Wembley Way awash with football fans for a women's game was something that I had never really seen before. 90,000 fans packed out the stadium. It was the highest attended European Championship final, male or female, on record, which is an incredible statistic given quite often the, the one kind of thing thrown at the women's game is that not enough people watch it. If you go back to the men's final the year before and you don't have to be a football fan to see what happened and the ugly scenes with fans and police. Fueled by alcohol and drugs, a violent and ticketless mob numbering 2,000 tailgated, stormed disabled gates or fire exits and broke into the stadium. And there was none of that. That was what was so lovely as well. It was just such a hopeful, happy, almost like a party, like a carnival atmosphere. And obviously, Chloe Kelly scored that goal. She's running through the middle of the pitch. She's one of them with a goalkeeper. She scored it over and scored a wonderful European Championship final goal at Wembley for England. Pretty much everyone in the country has seen that photo of Kelly running off in her sports bra. But just the way that the fans just stayed with the team was just fantastic to be a part of. The following day, I went to the Trafalgar Square celebration. The Lionesses celebrating winning the Euros on stage in front of 7,000 people in the square. It was just a sea of, of red and white, a sea of St George's flags. There was the huge big screen that was projected across Trafalgar Square because there were thousands of people there. And off the lionesses came onto the stage in various states of lack of sleep and probably a little bit hungover. Every word they said was cheered by their adoring public. And these players will have walked around for the majority of their career without people even knowing who they are. That there was players in that team that had balanced jobs. For example, someone like Beth England worked in a fish and chip shop. Someone like Lucy Bronze worked at Domino's Pizza. These aren't the, the prima donnas that you sometimes get in men's football that have grown up with this every day of their lives since they were 15, 16 years old. This has been a real journey for that group of players. Leah Williamson spoke fantastically, the England captain, about how it had really changed society. What we've done for women and, and young girls that can look up and aspire to be us... Um... I think England have hosted an incredible tournament and we've changed the game in this country and hopefully uh, across Europe, across the world. I genuinely think it did. And she talked about the fact that it will mean more to women, not just in a footballing sense, but women all over the world and all different kind of jobs. You know, it, it, it showed that equality is something that's very, very important. And this is what these women can do when they've been given the opportunity and given the stage to do that. And I think that Trafalgar Square moment was probably more surreal in a way than, than winning the final, in a sense, just because of how many people had come out to watch the Lionesses. I'm not surprised there were so many people at Trafalgar Square. Tell us a bit about how this team managed to do so well, because a lot of the credit is going to their coach, Serena Wiegmann. Tell us a bit about what she did that made them so successful. 
The one thing with Serena before she even came into the camp is that she inspired such kind of belief because she'd been there and done it. She won a home European Championships with the Netherlands in 2017. She also took them to the World Cup final in 2019 as well, where they lost to the United States. She had an experience that England women have never had before within their coaching staff. So straight away, everyone believed in her methods. In one of her early camps, she transformed one of the rooms at St George's Park into like a campfire with marshmallows and hot chocolates. And she had them all one by one go to the front and sort of tell their story to the group. In the months that followed, the players all highlighted that as a real moment for togetherness and kind of breaking down those barriers and becoming a tighter group. So that was a big thing as well. She wanted it to be a real team feel. This is the missing ingredient that England was looking for and she's brought us together. One of the things that we know Serena Wiegmann was very keen on doing with the team in order to inspire them was to tell them a bit about the history of women's football. Tell us that story. On one of her early camps, she gave each player a book called The History of Women's Football, written by Jean Williams, and told them kind of each night to read certain chapters. There was a real theme, particularly this tournament. So they were based at the Lensbury Hotel in Teddington, and there were rooms that were named after former players. It was to kind of represent the connections that had been made between the current team and the teams of the past that didn't have the recognition that they had the recognition failed you for so long it's my responsibility I stand on your shoulders without you I wouldn't be where I was and the game certainly wouldn't be where it is I actually did a piece for the Times with some former players that played for Manchester Corinthians and they were this team that had travelled all around the world to you know thousands of fans in the stadiums and then they would come back to England during the the ban on women's football from 1921 to 1971 and They'd return and they wouldn't be able to play in stadiums. So they played in parks and got washed in duck ponds. Wow. And I think that is what all of the players were so aware of, that this is the generation that have had so much more support and Mm. professionalism and opportunities than those before them ever had. For the Lionesses, the history of women's football was like a secret weapon motivating the team to victory. Serena Wiegmann not only gave each of the players a book on the subject, but she asked the author, Jean Williams, to come and talk to the team. So what did she tell them? To find out, we got in touch. My name is Jean Williams and I've been a professor of history and also a professor of sport at various universities and I think most people will know me for writing about the history of women's football. Jean, you were invited in to do a session just explaining the history of women's football to the Lionesses. Firstly, what was that like? The purpose in talking to the the Lionesses was to make them aware really that they had a huge opportunity. Previous official teams 
that had been formed since 1972, had reached the finals of the Women's Euros twice, first in 1984 and then again in 2009, but losing finalists in on both occasions. And this was an opportunity for a, a Women's Euros on home soil and just making them aware, really, of how different their professional lives were as athletes from the amateurs who had gone before them. So it's really common now for the Lionesses to be picked up in a car to driven to training camp. They will have tailored diets, nutrition, recovery routines, physiotherapy, psychologists, technical support. And if I think of Carol Thomas, who captained the 1984 Lionesses to the first Euros final that there ever was for women. You know, she was an amateur and it cost Carol much more money to represent England than she ever received. They used to receive like £15 a day when they were overseas as a form of um, almost like pocket money for adults. So it was just making the current crop of iconic pioneers aware that they were standing on the shoulders of giants. And clearly that was really important for Serena Wiegmann. When you went in and talked about these things, I mean, did you sense that it was having an effect in the room? Yes, and that's because, to bring it to life, I actually take Carol and Kerry Davis, who was England's top scorer until 2012, into the room, as well as some people who were considered to be unofficial lost lionesses who were actually banned. And hearing about young women who just wanted to play football being banned and how that affected their lives for the next 50 years had quite a powerful effect in the room, as well as hearing about the sacrifices of the official lionesses since 1972. For many... It'll seem bizarre to think footballers were banned in this country simply for being women. It's a part of our history that we don't often explore. So how did it come about? Well, coming up, Jean Williams explains all. That's after a quick message from one of my colleagues. I'm Megan Agnew, a news features writer at The Sunday Times. That means I might go from interviewing pop stars sitting in courtrooms covering the human impacts of crime, to tracking down the two women known as the Rolex Rippers. We can only do this thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. 
Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Just tell us a bit about the history of women's football. I think a lot of people won't know it. So just talk us through where it begins. I always begin these sessions by challenging the perception, the dominant narrative that women's football is new and growing and coming into its infancy or adolescence or maturity. And actually, I challenge that perception and say women's football uh, culture is as old as the culture of football. We do know that there's documentary evidence that women played street football on high days and holidays. And then in 1881, we have the first women's match under FA rules. And it was played as a professional entertainment in front of large crowds of paying spectators. And that's significant because professional football was at that time in its infancy with the establishment of the Football League in 1888. It continues to grow, particularly during World War I. When men were called to the front during World War I, women moved into munitions work, which was dirty and dangerous. And they started to have kickabouts during tea breaks. And this led them to say, oh, OK, let's do a kind of double war work. Let's work in the factories during the week. And then on our evenings and weekends, we'll practice football. And then we'll play in major stadia at weekends to raise money for local charities, either for wounded soldiers coming back from the front, including those with mental health challenges, or for local children's charities. That's incredible. So they were contributing to the war effort, really. And I suppose it must have been very good for morale. Yeah. And consequently, if you look at the film footage which exists on this, you will see that there are huge crowds in major stadiums. So Goodison Park is often quoted as being 50,000, but we know it was at least 45,000. All over the country, really, 150 teams playing regular football to raise large sums for charity. So it was really patriotic, double war work. So this sounds really smart and clearly has a lot of popular appeal. It's an incredible venture. Do we know how good the football was? Some of the football, as you might imagine, was better than others. Some of the teams were super, super serious. The likes of Dick Kerr ladies from Preston were an important team with a lot of uh, continuity and very serious about what they did. Atalanta ladies of Hull were all professional women, teachers, nurses, etc. 
who brought a real seriousness to their football. And you mentioned the Dick Kerr ladies. Tell us a bit about them. One of many munitionettes teams formed in what had previously been a tramworks in Preston, and they played their first match at the ground of proud Preston. Uh, so it's a, in a major stadium for their very first game, and they drew 10,000 people on Boxing Day 1917. Wow. And ju- yeah, just went on to accelerate the opposition that they played against, including playing against a French team in 1920. And you start to get internationals at about this time. So women's football is so topical because of the press and the fact that people are reading about this all over the world, that you start to get a lot of teams being formed in the likes of Australia and so forth. It's kind of the empire countries where it translates to. How do you go from having these incredibly successful female football teams who are drawing in crowds of thousands to women being banned by the the Football Association? How on earth did that happen? The simple answer to your question is money. The more complex answer to your question is that the male football league, which was professional and had two divisions by the time of the outbreak of war in 1914, was suspended as a national football league. But the football league revived in 1921 and it wanted to expand its two divisions to a third division south and a third division north, not quite doubling the size of the male professional football league, but almost. And those football league clubs put pressure on the FA, who gave a ruling on the 5th of December 1921. Just as women's football matches were drawing in crowds of 50,000 spectators and making more money than the men, the FA said they'd received complaints and ruled that the game of football is quite unsuitable for females and should not be encouraged. They ruled that women could not have access to pitches affiliated to the FA, which Mm. was the most significant element, that all of the pitches of the Football League were affiliated to the FA, as were every amateur, boys, every ground in the country was affiliated to the FA because it was the national governing body of the sport. So that, that effectively pushed women's football underground. That just seems shocking now. You know, you went from a a stage where women's football was so popular it was eclipsing men's football in this country and yet they're suddenly banned from playing anywhere. Women were not treated very nicely at the end of World War I. All those women who had gone into munitions were thrown out of work into uninsured trades at the end of World War I because people wanted a return to what they perceived to be normality. And those jobs in the factories were given back to men returning from war. So no matter how great the sacrifice women had made during World War I, it was perceived to be nothing like the sacrifice that men had made. And therefore it gave men, particularly returning soldiers, a legitimacy that anyone who worked on the home front was not accorded. And women were treated pretty shockingly. So... Their treatment in football was not that unusual. It just seems very spiteful to us in terms of the war work that women did. And 
this is sort of straight after the war where, you know, the country is going through a national adjustment. Why does that ban last for the next 50 years? How is it not challenged along the way? How does it not change when everything else for women was changing? That's quite a complex issue, isn't it? The UK had lost one million men, most of whose average age was 19. So there was just a generation of lost young men. Uh, And of course, a lot of women never married and had to support themselves and had more serious things that they had to deal with than getting a game of football. But of course, the ban was disputed. So there's the rather marvellous game that is played soon after the ban is issued in front of 44 doctors who give their view that women's football is no more taxing than a heavy day's washing. And of course, in those days, women didn't have white goods, so they will have done all of their washing of the bedclothes and the bed sheets and clothes and towels and everything physically by hand. So that's not any kind of throwaway comment. You know, washing was physically hard work. When finally the ban is lifted, I mean, talk us through that. How did it happen? When things begin to change for women after World War Two and you get the end of things like the marriage bar in teaching and women's rights gradually grow in the 50s and 60s. Women form teams and the great Manchester Corinthians women's team, for instance, win a European Cup in 1957 over in Germany. And because the football authorities are not interested, businessmen start to get interested and go, oh, this is an unregulated market. We can make Mm. a few quid here because the football authorities are not doing anything about it. So in 69, there is a women's FA formed in the UK, which is lots of amateur clubs and lots of like-minded women who want to play football, put pressure on the FA to lift the 50-year ban, which is done gradually by January 1970. What effect did not being allowed to play in stadiums have on women's football for those intervening 50 years? There's a whole array of issues that it caused, one of which is quite simply that the men had all of the stadiums. And this is a problem that women still have now. If you take, for example, Chelsea, the men play at Stamford Bridge, the women play at King's Meadow, which is quite difficult to get to. It's a much smaller stadium and you'll get this all across sort of any team that you imagine. I think you, you also forget how much of a a kind of generation of children grew up, not only like me not being able to play in school, but they just didn't see any women playing football ever. It wasn't on the TV. You didn't see it in stadiums. You couldn't attend matches where women played. So I think it was almost like a whole generation, really, was erased. And... In the 1970s, when women were suddenly allowed to play again, what was it like? You're almost starting from scratch again because I suppose all of the momentum that that teams like the Dick Kerr ladies had had started before the ban had then all gone. Many of the players then, you know, were trying to get time off work to be able to play. There was very little money, if any money, in it at all. Women's football wasn't respected. Do you ever play men's teams instead? We have done, yes. 
Uh, and do they treat you seriously? Oh yes, they might start off sort of thinking it's a big joke, but afterwards they compliment us. So I think there was almost so much more that the players then, and still now really, have to battle through because of that piece of legislation. It has such far-reaching consequences. Three days after winning the Euros, the Lionesses wrote an open letter to the incoming Prime Minister, setting out the legacy they want to create. This is what it says. We want to create real change in this country, and we are asking you, if you were to become Prime Minister on the 5th of September, to help us achieve that change. We want every young girl in the nation to be able to play football at school. Currently, only 63% of girls can play football in PE lessons. I'm 24, and when I went to secondary school, and I come from sort of near Peterborough, a reasonably sort of rural area, I suppose, Cambridgeshire, and there was not an option for me to play women's football or football in general at school. When the boys were doing football, the girls did netball or they did hockey. And it's a reason that there hasn't always been a, a great deal of representation across the women's team is because going to one of the few women's football clubs often costs quite a lot. If you don't have parents that can drive, it's going to be quite difficult to get out to somewhere reasonably remote to go for training. And, you know, obviously most of these teams you have to pay to join as well. Whereas the one good thing about school sport is that it's free and it's equal to everyone. But women's football hasn't had that. What are their hopes for what comes next? What are they hoping the next phase involves? It's really important that people realise that that player you watched in the summer, that Millie Bright, that Leah Williamson, you can go out and you can see locally for very cheap. The tickets are cost effective. And that's really the key now to fill out stadiums. The North London derby between Arsenal and Tottenham, which is going to be held at the Emirates Stadium, has already sold 35,800 tickets, which will make it a new Women's Super League attendance record if all of those those people turn up. It's really about breaking those records, about getting people into the stadiums. That's the thing that will make the biggest difference to these players, is if it's week in and week out, and making sure that it's not a boom and bust cycle. Also, just trying to ensure that young girls that have disability to play, I think... There is some work ongoing from the FA to try and ensure that these regional talent centres for young girls are placed in more accessible areas so that they are available by public transport or you can walk to them. They can be in cities rather than somewhere that requires a car and, you know, several hours of driving. That's something I know that the FA are really keen to capitalise upon and to make sure that that England starting 11, I believe, for the final was all white and that isn't representative of this country. And the reason for that is because, you know, these training centres have been put in places where many people just couldn't access them. And I think that's something that a lot of the players are really passionate about to ensure that every girl has that opportunity. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, the author and sports historian, Professor Jean Williams, and The Times sports reporter, Molly Hudson. You can find all of Molly's work at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription or in print. 
The producer today was Priyanka Delardia. The executive producer is Kate Ford. And sound design was by David Crackles. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.